be guided by it, but we know that apart from your Spirit, all of our efforts will be in vain. So our prayer today is that you come here, not just as you've promised, because we're banking on that, we're counting on that, Father. That's why we're gathered. They're gathered because you know, we know that you'd be among us. Father, in a tangible way, changing us. Making us like your Son, Jesus. Grant this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I hope you have your Bible with you and you will join me in opening to the book of Romans and sharing together with me in his word today. Inside your bulletin, you're going to find a 3 by 5 card. looks like this. Would you pull that out real quick? Lay your hand on it. Uh, here's what I'd like for you to do with this. Over the next three months, we're going to really pour our lives into Romans 8. What I would like for you to do, along with working with us in memorizing it, I would love for you to uh, take some time this week, read through Romans 8 several times, and then write about five questions that you have about that chapter. I really want to hear from you. I want to know what kind of jumps up when you read it and you go, oh yeah, I'd like to ask about that. And then drop those back off to us in any way you want to hand them to us. If you want to write them out today and give them to us as you walk out, uh, I'll be at the back door, other staff members will be around. Um, Or bring it next week, put it in the offering plate or drop it off or turn it into an email and email me. Josiah, you can pop up the Ecuador note up there. My, my email's on that one. So if you don't have my email, there you go. Uh, you could write that down. You could email me. Five questions. I, I would take less. I'd, I'd rather not sort through more. Uh, so around five. If you do have six really burning ones, we'll, we'll take that. And I'm going to work through those. And my goal is to seek to answer some of those things as we work through Romans 8. As we go into the text today, what I want to share with you is catch you up to where we are after the last few weeks and introduce to you today the concept of justification. And then... The understanding of justification by faith. My goal today is mostly instruction of these things. My goal next Sunday will hopefully be illustration of these things. So in the series of what we're working through, really today is part one of next week as I instruct and then illustrate. I think I would keep you too long If I did both of those today, you know how I am. So, uh, I'm working with you. Um, So, let's catch up to where we are. This was a verse that we launched with when we started. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is angry, justly angry with sinners. 
And then he sums us all up in Romans 3 by saying, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short, I misspelled that, it's not for the glory of God, of the glory of God, we should be for the glory of God, alright, they are justified freely as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Tim Keller sums up the gospel, not saying that this short sentence is the gospel, but it's, a, it's an image of the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Well, over the last few weeks, what we found out is that Romans 8 is the answer to a crisis caused by the collision of four things in a person's mind and heart. And we've reviewed those. There's a guy here, or a gal. God's command comes to them, revealing their sin in their nature. They combat it, either through false righteousness or outright rebellion. God sends His Holy Spirit to begin the process of convicting that person of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. God pricks the conscience of that person by His Holy Spirit, making that person aware that he or she is under condemnation. So when Paul cries out in Romans chapter 7 at the end of the chapter, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? We're seeing the gospel at work in Paul, bringing all of this about so that he knows that apart from true deliverance, apart from true rescue, salvation, that he is under God's wrath. Now, a person may come to this initially when they first come to Christ, or they may cycle through it many times as a believer. I believe Paul's representation in Romans 7 sort of summarizes both of those. It could be the first experience, or it could be the ongoing experience when we fall back into sin as believers and wrestle with the fact that when we got saved, we didn't become perfect We actually are still inhabiting a sinful body, a sinful mind that need to be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. But yet, we know the gospel and that gospel is at work in our hearts. And so, this is what the Apostle Paul is wrestling with when he gets to Romans 7. And he says, man, I am at this place where I can sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound is saved, a wretch like me. And so Paul understands condemnation. He feels the weight of it in his heart, in his mind, in his body, as he works through the gospel in his life, the good news of Jesus. And so that helps us move to the next level. Condemnation leaves us excuseless, in our behavior. There are two texts in the book of Romans that we need to be familiar with before we try to excuse our behavior. The first one is in Romans chapter 1. It starts in verse 19. It says, Because that which is known about God is evident within everyone. For God made it evident to them, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes and His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Every cognitive human being has a revelation of God through nature, creation, and conscience. Every rational human being who is cognitive and understanding, they come to this place. And they are without excuse for their behavior, for their sin, for their rejection of God, their failure to glorify Him and worship Him and to thank Him. The Apostle Paul says, but even if you're growing up in a religious circle where God is known religiously, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. What's he saying? He's saying the fact that you know right and wrong enough to look at somebody else and say they're wrong means that you also know enough to know that you're wrong. And so you're without excuse. Whether you have the general revelation of creation and conscience or whether you have the specific revelation of God's commands, you are wrong. And that is the first part of the gospel message. We're excuseless in our behavior. You have no excuse before God. You can't go to Him and say, but, but, but. It's not going to work. You have no excuse for how you have conducted yourself in public and private in the eyes of God. And so the Apostle Paul says that the state of condemnation with God's wrath over us leaves us in a place where we are excuseless in our behavior. We're also speechless in our defense. Come with me to Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul lays out how sinful we are. He says it in a very brutal way. He begins in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside together. They've become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. You're, I, we are in the none. Before God, we're speechless because we're wrong. The Apostle Paul says it in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, in other words, the revelation of God's holiness, it says to those who are under the law, look at what he says, that every mouth may be closed. I don't know what your plan is. For when you stand before God. Maybe you've got a speech rehearsed. Maybe you've been kind of got a little three by five card that's like this one. But it's not questions you had about Romans 8. It's uh, things that you're going to tell God that should qualify you to get into heaven. So you've been carrying that around. You've got your list. You've got your morality or your religion. You've got your works and your deeds. Uh you may want to whoop that card out when you stand in front of the Lord, but you're not going to get to say anything. Your mouth will be closed when you observe the mighty 
holy God. Oh, Jesus says there are some people that will try to get a few lines in. But, oh, Lord, didn't we uh, do the religious thing and cast out the demons? Didn't we do the religious thing and, and, and do these miracles? Didn't we do this religious thing and perform these things? And Jesus will simply say, get away from me. I never knew you. Listen carefully. I don't know what you're rehearsing to say before God. But you are both excuseless for your behavior. And you are going to be speechless in your defense. The third thing Paul tells us under condemnation is that we are groundless in our comparisons. One of the most essential gospel truths, and I think it will be the cutting razor's edge of many people not getting into heaven, will be this. That somehow, we think, any one of us, that we qualify because we're better than anybody else. I believe there will be people that day who grew up in a great evangelical, gospel-preaching, orthodox doctrine, fervent-worshipping, Bible-teaching church, who will, in light of even being exposed to all that, will still think they're getting there because they're better than somebody else. It's going to be a shock. The Apostle Paul says we are groundless in our comparisons. Listen to what he says in Romans 3. He says in verse 9, for those Jewish people who felt they were better than the Gentile people, if God's ever specifically said that He favored a people, didn't He favor the Jews? Do this? Yeah, He did. The whole story of the Old Testament is God's favor upon the Jews. And then Paul drops this nuclear bomb right into the lap of every Jewish man, woman, boy, and girl that ought to be in the lap of every human being. He asks the question in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they are? He doesn't just say no. He says not at all. If you're here today and you think you're better than somebody else. I want to tell you, you're in danger. You're in danger. In fact, Paul makes it so much more clear in chapter 3. He says in verse 22, the last part of verse 22, powerful verse. He says, for there is no distinction. How much distinction is there? Between you and anybody on this earth. How much distinction is there? Outside of Christ, how much distinction is there between you and any human being on this earth? How much? Do we believe that? In the way we treat people? in the way we look at people, in the way we evaluate people, in the way we relate to people. Do we believe that? We're not talking about orthodoxy. 
Oh, yeah, I believe those doctrines. I've got this mental assent to those doctrines. But in how we talk to, treat, love, respect, and evangelize every person on this planet. Is there a sense that you and I are operating as if there is a distinction? And that we, I, us, are better Oh, you can watch the news and find them. You can always find somebody you're above in your thinking. You can find them in life and life's experiences. You can find them in the news. You can find them on the internet. And you can treat them like they're less than you. And we may even get on board with you in our political schmoliticals, in our nationalism. We may jump right in with you. But I want to tell you something. God is looking at us. And He knows in our hearts if there's a distinction between us and others. He knows. The Gospel of Jesus brings us to a place of condemnation where there is no excuse. There is no speech. There are no grounds by which I can compare myself to any human being and believe that I deserve anything better than Him. The Apostle Paul said, For all have, and the wages of sin is... So I'm like, how much dead are you going to be? I'm going to be less dead than the other guy. No. Listen carefully. God is working the gospel into our hearts. Superiority has no place in church. It has no place in home, in neighborhood, in community. Superiority has no place in politics. Superiority has no place in religion. Superiority has no place before God's eyes. There is no distinction. But this leaves us even more in danger. The Apostle Paul lets us know that we're helpless in our rescue. We're helpless. You say, Pastor Bart, are there words to back that up? Yes. Romans 5, verse 6. You know, that's music. The Bible pages turning. Sounds better than screen swiping, doesn't it? Bible pages turning. beautiful music. Romans 5 verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. That's us. We were helpless. You and I. In our rescue. And so here, the Apostle Paul, the anguish that he has in his verse that he has for us in Romans 7.24, What a wretched man I am! Jump there. Romans 7.24. What a wretched man I am! Think about saying that. What We sing it. It rolls off the lips in song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound is saved a wretch like me. It's poetic. But it's not intended to be poetic. It's tended, intended to be confessional. If it is true 
These things that we just reviewed, that I am excuseless in my behavior, speechless in my defense, groundless in my comparisons, and helpless in my rescue, then this is me. What a wretched man I am. What a wretched man. Under the wrath of God. Under His condemnation. So the Apostle Paul. But I want to ask you something. How does he make this transition? Watch this transition. He goes from, what a wretched man I am, look, to thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yesterday we were um, had a memorial service here for Michael Stewart's mother. And so we gathered small group, sweet time of fellowship and worship, and Landon led us in worship, and Landon sang a song that um, I really like. It's one of my favorites, Come Thou Fount. And there's this one line in it where it says, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Well, somewhere between Paul's experience of verse 24 and Paul's expression in verse 25, God had reached in through gospel truth and tuned his heart. To move from looking at his own wretchedness to looking at God's glorious forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 8 is. It's a heart tune-up. It's God coming to you. And so now Paul's going to sort of vomit out to us in Romans 8 what God poured into his heart in answer to Romans 24, Romans 7.24 so that Romans 7.25 could be what, what he said. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the Apostle Paul has a heart tune. And God has tuned his heart to sing his praise. But listen, Paul had to find out it was out of tune first. He had to get to that place of desperation, of gospel desperation, both in the sense of initial salvation, but that ongoing sense where we are desperately in need of His grace every day, every day, every day. And so my job today, in ten minutes, is to introduce you to the doctrine of justification by faith. Paul starts out, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation. How did he get there? How did he get there? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll have to run through, and, and Josiah, you may have to bring me back, because this thing doesn't back up good. All right. Condemnation can only be removed by justification. All right, let's think this through. You stand before God. God looks at you and says, you're wrong. <laughs> you're condemned. You're a sinner. You're helpless to do anything about it. You're groundless in going, but what about, what about him? What about her? You're speechless to give any kind of answer that's going to deliver you. And you're excuseless for how you've acted before you stood in front of him. So how can you go from God looking at you saying, you are wrong? Remember that condemnation and justification are both legal terms that came out of both the judicial system of the Jewish people and the judicial system of the Greek people. So when Paul used the term condemnation, he knew that they understood it meant to stand before a judge and be found guilty. Be told, you are wrong. You are guilty. 
So how can a man go from you are guilty in the front, uh, in the face of a judge who is righteous and holy and honorable and tells nothing but perfect truth and knows nothing but absolute truth? This God. How can Paul go instantaneously from this condemnation to no condemnation? How can God be looking at you one moment and say, you are wrong. You are guilty. And in the next moment, look at you and say, you are right. You are not guilty. How can that occur? The word justification has a very important meaning. Justification happens when God renders a favorable verdict. Favorable to the accused, by the way. What's a favorable verdict when you're accused? Not guilty! That's a favorable verdict. That's what justification is. It's when the gavel comes down. And when it comes down, the judge says, Not guilty! What? you kidding me? I'm Mr. Wrong. How could that gavel ever come down? Well, Paul fleshes it out, and here we go. First, we need to know that justification is given freely as a gift. It is not because you've earned any good standing before God. God's never going to lie. So He can't say to you, you're not guilty based on your performance. Because you are guilty. He can't say to me, Bart, you're not guilty. Because Bart's guilty. So if God is going to do this, He has to do this freely as a gift. It has to come to me apart from what I deserve, what I earn, and what has been pronounced over me, condemnation and wrath. The Bible says that we are justified freely or as a gift. Second, justification. Oh, I went too far. Back me up there. Thank you. Justification is based exclusively on God's grace. Grace is when God favors you with what is necessary to forgive you. He favors you with what is necessary to forgive you. Not whitewashing. It is tied to the word gift. It's an idea that you are receiving something undeserved and it's becoming a possession of yours. It's becoming a part of you. And so justification is based exclusively on God's grace. It's not tied to what you've done. In fact, it's necessary because of what you've done. You are condemned and now you want to be right with God, right before God, forgiven before God, declared not guilty before God. How can that ever happen? Well, it comes as a gift and it comes by grace. It's also an act of redemption. An act of redemption means that there's a price on your head. 
And that that price is above what you yourself are worth. And therefore, someone has to come in and invest in you above what you are worth so that you can be sold out of and freed from the situation you're in. It's always something with a cost involved. It's something where the cost is typically above the working value of the individual. Therefore, if a slave is being redeemed, it's because the slave can't, by his own labor, produce enough wealth to purchase his own freedom. Someone who has wealth has to invest in him. And so it's a redemption. It's a freedom issue. It's a purchase issue. It's a cost issue. So, redemption. We are justified freely as a gift by His grace through the redemption. There's a price on your head. The wages of sin is death. Who could pay that? You say, well, I will. I'll go be a martyr. Listen, here's your problem. You're not a worthy trade for your own soul. Why? Because you've already sinned. You don't have the collateral. You don't have the equity in your own self to pay for your sin by your own death. You said, Pastor Bart, how do you know that? That's why hell is eternal, because once you go there, by dying, you can never pay it off. So you die and die and die and die and die, and whatever that is, it is forever, because you can't pay it off. There is no collateral, there is no equity in you that can pay off your debt. And so this redemption is that Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. The good news is that God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. Over and over is this beautiful picture of Redemption. This is also found only in Christ Jesus. Remember how Romans 8 starts off. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Where are they? The lack of condemnation is only in Christ Jesus. It's found nowhere else. It's obtained nowhere else. It's purchased nowhere else. It's available nowhere else. It is only in Christ Jesus. But, something else has to be at play here. And that is that justification springs from God's display of public propitiation. You say, what is that? Well, back in the day, when you offended a king, a royalty, a prince, a landed lord, when you offended them, their wrath or their anger would be, in a sense, a wanted poster over your life for the rest of your days. You could take off, run from that king or that prince or that landed lord, and hope he never caught up with you and live your life on the lamb. Or you could be like the sticks song and sing the jig is up, the news is out, they finally found me. The renegade who had it made retrieved for a bounty. 
You see, at some point, God's going to catch you. You can live on the lamb, but this landed Lord, this royalty, this king is going to catch you. So there's only some hope that you might find something that would happen between you and that king, you and that Lord, you and that prince, that would make them happy with you again. Back in the day, it included offerings, rewards, riches, wealth, that you would take and hope to appear before the king, hope to appear before the prince or the landed Lord and bring them this present. And if they thought that the present was sufficient, their wrath was lifted and you were reinstated as a subject to their realm with the rights and privileges of that realm. Well, here's our problem. We have nothing to offer God. There is nothing we can offer Him to propitiate Him and make Him favorable to us again. We have offended Him so deeply and so eternally and so in such a magnitude that if you could offer Him the universe, it could not compensate for your soul. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, has made His own propitiation. Jesus was displayed publicly, humiliatingly, on the cross as God's settlement between us and Him. So that any who are in Christ Jesus can be restored into His kingdom as a loyal subject and receive all the rights and privileges inherent in that kingdom. But the only way His wrath and anger can ever be taken away is by His wrath and anger being poured out upon His own Son who received in His own self the punishment for our sin. And so we'll flesh this out next week and maybe that's one of the questions you're going to write is to describe that further. Finally, for today, justification is received by faith alone. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Your only connection to this forgiveness, this restoration, this new birth, this being placed into God's family, this adoption, this kingdom, your only access to it is by faith. Not simple assent. God's not into your intellect. He gave you your intellect. He cares that you use your brain and your smarts. But He's not talking about you just doing this with Him. Oh yeah, sure. I believe. He's talking about you abandoning everything and clinging to one thing. And that is Jesus Christ. His call to you is for you to see how serious your situation is. So that you, under the condemnation and wrath of God, 
could see how serious it is. And you, like the Apostle Paul, could step back, look at yourself rightly through the Scriptures, and say, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched person I am. What a wretched woman I am. Who will deliver me? And that through the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, this one verse being justified freely as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, you could, by faith today, say, Get this condemnation off of me. I can't live under it. Take this wrath from me. I can't bear it. And that you today, by simply calling upon Jesus Christ, could ask Him on the grounds of the Gospel to save you. And He would tune your heart. And rather than going around like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, woe is me. You would be like the Apostle Paul. Thanks be to God! Through Jesus Christ my Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. God did. Sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That gift can be yours today. And some of you who already have the gift, you need to get out of that Eeyore mode right now. And when we sing in a minute, I heard Ray Ortland say this week, sing your fool head off. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Would you call on Him? Bow with me now. My deep desire today is for you to know Christ. Deep desire is for you to trust Christ. For you to call upon Him. And to turn from your sin and your selfishness and your belief that you're going to tell God why He ought to let you into heaven. Come on. And that you this morning would say, Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched girl that I am. Wretched woman that I am. Oh, wretched boy that I am. Who will deliver me from my sinful self? And then you would turn. And you would look to Jesus. And you would trust Him. And the gavel would come slamming down and the words would be said in your soul. Not guilty. (laughs) Not guilty. 
not guilty. Because Jesus was guilty for you. Will you turn to Him today? Stand. If you're ready to turn to Him, call on Him with me right now. Pray with me in your heart. Dear God in heaven, I am a guilty sinner. That's me. I have no grounds for comparing to others. No speech to defend my behavior. No excuse to rationalize. I am helpless. But I just heard that there's hope. That Jesus Christ died for my sins and was raised from the dead. And so this morning, I repent of my sins, God. And I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Would you forgive me and declare me not guilty? Would you receive me and declare me your child? Because I believe in Jesus. I place my faith, my life, my all in Jesus. Here are my empty hands of faith. Let me receive what you have for me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come? As God stirs you, would you come today?